Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm author Susie Wilde. And I'm bookseller Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. And our guest this month is Greg Moss, author of The Coming Darkness, appropriately enough for autumn. Uh, it's that time of year for great reads, so let's crack on. What have you been reading, Susie? Well, I'm going to be doing another course on romantic fiction, this time with Marion Keyes. So I've mostly been reading romance. But also, we've just come back from Pembrokeshire, where we had a holiday cottage, which was bristling with Jojo Moyes, um, who I hadn't really read very much of. And I have to say, I now understand why people like her tremendously. Jojo is great. She did a trip with um, Kate Moss, Ken Follett and Lee Child all across Europe they went, uh, it was a sort of anti-Brexit tour and they went from city to city saying this Brexit thing has nothing to do with us and um, and Jojo was great. That I had completely forgotten that, so the voice you've just heard is indeed Greg Moss who's our guest, who's already with us which is brilliant. So the main one I enjoyed is the One Plus One by Jojo Moyes and I must say that in common with several of the books I've read you start with a protagonist that you really don't understand. She is irritating in the extreme and you feel just why would anyone love her? By the end you're completely gunning for her and it's really important I think not to give up books too early just because you don't like the protagonist. If you hate the writing that's of course completely different but there you go. It's a bit risky I think if you're if you're a writer to, if you if you put off the if you put off the reader too early that's not a, not a great great plan. I agree but still you have to trust <laughs> your author. I'd say there's a balance though isn't there because if you're Jojo Moisen You've perhaps you've got a cover that says this is a sympathetic book. You're going to like these people. Mm. If you start off not liking them, you trust the author that you will that you'll learn why it is that you should be more sympathetic to them. Which means that the rest of the writing has to be good enough. If you don't already oh, yeah. know the author, that you have to actually trust them. The other is Rising Tide by Anne Cleves that fits right in because she's another writer that I read a lot of. It's a Vera Stanhope. I think, Tim, you mentioned it the other week. Um, Really enjoying that. It feels very pertinent because they're people of my sort of age who are having a reunion. It was the only connect sort of um, raison for 50 years ago meeting and there's an horrible murder and Bleeding Heart Yard by our own Ellie Griffiths, who was also a guest on here with Leslie Thompson, Greg. So, yeah. Right, so I'm keeping it very short. I've obviously read other books than that, but I'm trying to crack on because I know, Tim, you've got lots that you want to talk about. But just to say, our book group restarted after the summer break and we read small things like these by Claire Keegan, which you recommended to me and said that I particularly would enjoy it. And you're absolutely on the money. I completely Loved it. And I'm very much in favour of the novella, as you know. Um, But it has to conform to the form, and it does. But it did put me in mind of the John Banville snow. Right, yes. Well, I suppose it's another cold book in Ireland. Um. (laughs) But more than that... (laughs) Yeah, and beautiful writing as well. With the protagonist, I think. As a bookseller, do you remember when Miss Miller's Feeling for Snow came out? I do. It was a big old hit. That autumn, more or less every book had snow on the cover. Snow it, falling on cedars? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I remember that exactly. one as well. Exactly. Yeah. It became uh, a trope of book oh. design, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the, the book Snow, the John Bamble book mm. that, that Susie mentioned, is uh, 
is a wonderful book. It's, it's freezing cold the whole way through the book. It's, 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 everything's on a blanket of snow. It. Everything is kind of subdued by this snow. And, and every time he gets into his car you, and he tries to start his car and it's kind of, you can just feel, you know, he's not going to get the heater on quick. Yeah. And, and it's secrets really good, muffled really good by thing. snow. Yeah, sort of, that yeah. sounds really atmospheric. Yeah, it reminds me of um, Winter when, Ghosts. No, well, oh. well, yes, but also when when Kate and I were, were children, well, in secondary school, we both worked at CFT in Chichester, and there was a show on called Terra Nova, with Huel Bennett in the lead, and it was a brilliant show about um, Robert Falcon Scott's trip to um, Antarctica and his failure to reach the pole first, because basically he took the wrong equipment. He had a he had a sleigh full of champagne instead of a, sh- a sleigh We're full of high experts at this because of our food. guest, Catherine McInnes. Right. Yes. So, um, and it was a magnificent show, but of course it was the summer season at CFT and people did not enjoy two and a half hours of being made to shiver by what was happening <laughs> on stage and they have never sold fewer tubs. Yeah. Oh, no, that's I, interesting. That's Great set design <laughs> by another of our guests, Pamela Howard. Good point. Isn't Here that extraordinary? Yeah. That links in with with the the book. So that's one of one of them. It's the shortest one, uh, shortest in length, but not the shortest in number of words. Apparently, um, the shortest number of words Walker? is Trickle Walker by the oldest writer, Alan Garner. Um, but small, uh, but small things like these. Uh, it's only 116 pages, so you know that it's pretty. It's pretty neat, as you say, it's a novella, really, rather than a than a novel. Um, and uh, there are the various others: "Glory" by Noviolet Bulawayo, which I haven't read, the Zimbabwean author; um, "The Trees" by Percival Everett, and uh, what else have we got here? "The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida" by Shihan Karanitalaka. Uh, and I think that that's about it. Really. Oh, William! But I know oh, William, of course, yes. By Elizabeth Strout, who did Olive Kittredge, and um, uh, so yeah, some interesting, interesting books there. I must uh, haven't really. Have you had a go at those yet? Greg? I haven't read any of those. No, no, not not because I'm rejecting them out of hand, just because of all the work that I do in theatre. I have so much script reading to do that I I seldom have time left for anything else. Well, you'll have time for the Claire Keegan, if nothing else, because it, it is very, 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 very slim. And it's worth reading as well, as we, as we both, totally both uh, It'd be a good one to teach with as well. Your recommendations are always solid. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so moving on to... Uh, what you've read? Well, I've been reading uh, uh, several books, actually. Playing Under the Piano, which is the autobiography of Hugh Bonneville, uh, partly because he's, he's coming, coming to the shop to launch his book. It's lo- got lots of anecdotes about his time in the theatre and in film and on TV... Um, he's of course, for those who don't know, he's the Downton Abbey chap. Uh, also, he was, he was in the Paddington Bear films. Uh, but there's much more than that in the book. Um, some quite poignant bits about his brother and about his his parents as well. So it's well worth reading. Uh, that's the first thing I was going to talk about. The Romantic by William Boyd. Um, this is he writes seems to write two sorts of books. William Boyd, sort of contemporary books which uh, perhaps slightly slighter, I would say, and um, books set in the past which have got more meat to them. Um, this one is, is a bit like Any Human Heart. I don't know if you remember that, which was set in the... which was a sort of story of the 20th century told through a made-up character who inter- intersects with lots of real people. Um, his protagonist this time is called Cashel Greville Ross, and he's born in the end of the ni- 18th century, 1798, and it's a kind of story of the 19th century, 
Uh, he, again, intersects with lots of events like uh, the Battle of Waterloo or the, the search for the source of the Nile and various other things throughout the book. Um, so it's a little bit of kind of like a sort of Forrest Gump kind of affair. Uh, he, he goes, he works his way through through um, Europe and North America. And it's, uh, well, it's a, it's a cracking cracking story, actually. Well, well worth reading. It's That's a, a brilliantly fluent summary. That's fantastic. <laughs> have you, have you haven't read it, have you? Know? No, but I'm, I'm clearly that is... On the list now. He's Come done on. this before. Good, good. Um, yes, yeah, so, so at heart, this character is a romantic, and so it's all these kind of events he has. Um, I also read London Rules by Mick Heron, one of one we've all, often talked about uh, him on the on the on the program. Um, and every so often, I do go back to some old series that I've enjoyed in the past, and I have never read this one. Um, and it's uh, it's. It features his uh, cast of characters from the Slow Horses. Um, so is it House. a new one of No, it's not that new. It's, okay. about, it's about three or four years old. Okay. Uh, but I think it's new to me, and new I've never read it before. Yeah. Good, and of course I've been, I've been reading Greg's book as well. So that's... that's, that's I'll, leave, I'll leave there. We'll talk about that in a moment. Of course. So, so now it's time for our interview. Greg Moss describes himself as a writer and encourager of writers. I do. I can vouch for that. Mm-hmm. He also has a lifelong interest in theatre, both in the UK and as a graduate in Paris, before going on to live in New York, Los Angeles and Madrid. Gadabout. He teaches script writing at the Criterion Theatre, Chichester Festival Theatre and elsewhere. Um, he's married to novelist Kate Moss and I met them both for the first time at one of their many writing workshops. Greg went on to develop and teach an MA in creative writing. During the coronavirus lockdowns, he wrote two and a half novels. It's like somebody told me they had had COVID three and a half times, um, of which The Coming Darkness is the first to be published. So, Greg, could you just kick off by telling us briefly what it's about? It's about a French secret agent. My hero is living in 2037. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because I wanted a future that was like today, but more so, uh, where the problems that we're facing are more intense, but but we can imagine over that lapse of time, international cooperation has begun to take steps to confront them purposefully, rather than the situation that we're in at the moment, which is... The problems of transgenic viruses and environmental degradation and loss of species habitat and all of those things are being confronted in a piecemeal way, not in a coordinated way. You mean globally? I do. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I mean. And alongside that, of course, there's there's this this twin opportunity and and cost that the hyper-connected world of 2037, like today, but more so, global corporations, government surveillance, all of those things are clearly come with enormous risks. But at the same time, a hyper-connected world means that renewable energy can be shared across the globe. The sun is always shining somewhere, the wind is always blowing somewhere, the tides are always running somewhere. But that takes international cooperation to make those balanced supplies work together. So that's the the context. And then, of course, because it's a thriller, my secret agent, Alexandre Lamarck, he must must prevent a catastrophic terrorist outrage. And it takes him quite a long time to work out what's coming 
darkness, as in the title, and to work out what that must mean for the people who are the enemies of, of you and I. Excellent. Why, why did you pick somebody French? Why have your protagonist, main protagonist? Well, it was really because my, my background working in international institutions in Paris, like UNESCO, OECD, um, what we now call European Union, but which was um, European community back then, um, that was what gave me the insight into how those organisations work. And even if you're a, a very unimportant interpreter in an international organisation, you, you still meet those people, the people with, um, with hooded eyes who are always talking in corners and never want to say exactly what they mean. And that, when, when um, we were talking about Lee Child earlier on the tour he did with Jojo and with Ken and with Kate, and um, he very kindly said that the book reminded him of John le Carre, and I wanted that opaque mystery of the secret services um, who don't know who to trust and can barely speak to one another with frankness and openness. I, it made me think of the uh, the the, 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 the from the Bureau. Did you ever see that series on? No, I never did. Bureau, fantastic. Uh, French. It's in French, and it, it's a it's a brilliant series about the French. Uh, MI6, the, the, the Secret Intelligence Service, and um, but it reminded me of, of this as well. But um, There's also a really, I think, an interesting cultural thing there. So the DGSE that you were just referring to, the uh, Directorate General for External Security of France, uh, is in some buildings, your listeners might know Belachet Cemetery in eastern Paris. The buildings they occupy are there, and it's uh, the buildings are known as La Piscine, the swimming pool, because it's it took over the site of a municipal swimming pool many years ago, and it's still <laughs> referred to as that. I didn't know that. In the Second World War, it was used uh, by the Germans as a headquarters, and hence one of the characters in my novel, The Coming Darkness, at one point <laughs> says, is there a stench of treason still? Mm. And this is, of course, 80, 85 years on now, 2037, but there is... There, the memories of betrayal are, are really long, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think um, that, that I think they took, I think they might refer to the swimming pool in the, the piscine in in, um, in the bureau, but I'm not sure. Mm. But but they certainly when they they keep on showing shots off from the outside, yeah. um, and uh, it does have that have just certainly has that has that feeling. And the other thing in answer to your question, Susie, is um, when I've, I think I'm, I once mentioned to you when I was writing it, because we were in touch, uh, was I, I started, I, when I started I gave it the working title 2048 and your book People, so you'll immediately recognise that that was sort of in homage to 1948 when Orwell wrote 1984. And then I realised that was too far ahead. I didn't want to go a whole generation into the future. Mm-hmm. I wanted it, like I said, today, but more so, just mm. far enough. Still in touch. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nice. And then, of course, it, it, it's, it's partly in, set in, in Libya as well, where, again, where, where things are, are going wrong right now. Um, and you, you, you posit a, a state that in Saranisha, well, is, that, is that how you pronounce it? I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. it well, uh, I guess in the classical period it would be Cyrenica, wouldn't it? But, uh, yeah. but yeah. Cyrenia is the invented name for it. So eastern Libya, essentially, yeah. on the border with Egypt. Yeah. 
Now, that's one of the things I'm just going to jump in here because it's reminded me that one of the things I found when I was reading the book that I wanted to look up things like that because I didn't know. I wanted to know what here is made up and what really exists. And when you were bothered to do that, then I could see that it also had a classical resonance and so on, which you've explained. It really interests me that you obviously have the voice of authority, which we've just heard in the way that you described why you had the idea in the first place. But at what point do you as an author conduct research? Do you write the whole story first or do you do the researching first? Or what, What's your method? I think the interesting part of, of the process, not really different from other writers, a bit of one, a bit of the other. But the interesting part of the process is, of course, that I was researching the future. So I read an uh, enormous number of um, popular press and general scientific articles which predicted what was going to happen in the next five to 20 years. But when did you read them? Did you write your story for a first draft first? or um... So I, as I was working... So the um, the first chapters that I wrote, although obviously they were edited as time went by, but they're substantially the same, uh, happen about 60% of the way through the book. And I think this is quite a common experience. You, um, you're struck as a, as a writer by something deeply felt and vividly imagined on the screen in your mind. And it's probably too big for the beginning. It's probably something that your story must work towards. But it's probably not the end either. It's probably something around the middle or just... Start. Anyway, that, that was my experience. Um, to be specific, the journals that I consulted most were um, the, the Guardian that has excellent science writing, um, Le Monde that has the same, El País that has the same in Spain, and... Um, and I, I found that um, if one of those, Wall Street Journal, if one of those mentioned something, it would come up again in the other newspapers that I was used to consulting. And there might be a different angle as well. So, for example, the Spanish press is highly focused on the depletion of freshwater aquifers because Spain is a married country that has been an extraordinary producer of soft fruit and other agricultural products. And aquifers that have been built up over many thousands of years are being depleted over tens of years. The, um, the, the concerns are obviously global, but there's different concerns in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, full of, it's full of other little, little bits and pieces which I found fascinating. And something about the, the, the day of the no. So that was yes. really interesting, isn't it? And it, it maybe maybe want to look it up and find out what it was all about, which I did. Twenty eighth of October is the day. The day hey, of the I'm note. going to take your word for it. It's some time <laughs> since I wrote this book, it's and I've written soon. three others. Yeah. Uh, um, but yes, it is interesting, isn't it? But the, the the texture of that is important too. So it's the day on which the Greek people rejected the authority of the Italian oppressors, yeah. and. The it's it, it it feels so important, doesn't it? Because you know that the Greek people were the underdogs, and being the underdog and fighting back is something that is threaded all the way through the coming darkness. Yeah, yeah, and is very current. 
actually. I think it always will be, won't it? Yeah, I hope it will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing, I, another thing I picked up, one of the things I so interested me, the, the, the Damon Runyon uh, line about six to five. Tell us, tell us a bit Against. about that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a betting term. It, and what it, what it means, so six to five against, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? But it, it does mean that you're going to lose more often than you win. And if that happens repeatedly, you end up with nothing. So that, that's the thing. If the odds are only slightly against you, in the end, they will defeat you. You do it enough times. They you will do. defeat you utterly. Ultimately, ultimately you're over. Yeah, so, which is the, and the other, which is the other line, of course, yeah. is one day will be shorter, which is that, is, that, is that every day is the same, and then one day will be shorter. And that actually is... Um, I first came across in a book of medieval proverbs, would you believe, in the Occitan language, when Kate and I were doing research for her um, her novel Labyrinth. One day will be shorter, so originally in the Occitan proverb, meaning, of course, that for all of us, every day of our lives will be the same length except the one on which we die, which will be shorter than all the rest. I loved that. Mm. I read it, yeah. I had no idea. It went right back to Labyrinth. Yes. I mean, absolutely. the, um, the knowledge and that, of it. Yes, and that, re- and that research. When you have a, a complex narrative with multiple viewpoints, not an enormous number of, but several viewpoints that are not the hero, although it's predominantly the hero. You you look, you know this as an author yourself. You look for um, different ways of speaking, different ways even of describing circumstances that are closely related to who the point of view character is in this other part of your narrative. So the the day of the no belongs to the people on uh, um, on the Greek island that my hero goes to talk to. Um, one day will be shorter belongs to another set of characters, and it's a a way of thinking about life which is fatalistic and almost accepting of death, isn't it? And that, of course, which is actually reminds me very gone. much of something Hilary Mantel said recently that I think is brilliant, which is. Life arranges it so that there will be a fight that you can't win, i.e. you'll die. You will, yeah. But I thought particularly pertinent um, to her life with, with so many battles against illness. But then at the same time as all of this, of course, the, the catastrophic terrorism that he's trying to prevent, the opaque mysteries of the security services, this, there is also the, the fact that in the hyper-connected world that he, inhabited, that he inhabits, can Alex be persuaded to fight for what is right? And of course, in the end, he is. And because it's a thriller, even if, the, even if his success at the end is partial, he will, of course, be successful, won't he? Well, will he? Well, will he? That's the... Yeah, that's the <laughs> That's the, that's the million dollar question. You'll have to read it to find out, is the answer to that. <laughs> that is a good answer. And it's coming out in, in November. November right? 10th. November yeah. 10th. So we look forward to that. Thank you. Last time we talked about Cozy Crime, uh, Tim, and what just, we. Just point out whether that noise, by the way, is, is, is not drilling in the. It's actually cooking going on downstairs. So oh. you're yeah, making cakes so, downstairs. Anyway, Tim and I talked about Cozy Crime, and Greg, you've written. Um, two, two and a half? Three, as it happens. Three yes. crimes. And we were de- deciding what the definition of that might be, and that's fine. We kind of have explored that. Um, 
why did you choose a thriller? What was it about a thriller, as well as cosy crime we can understand, thriller we can understand, but how would you define thriller? What's the difference between The Coming Darkness and one of your cosy crime novels, for instance? It's place, of course, first of all, isn't it? And then secondly, it is the things that are at stake are enormous. It's, it's hard to write a thriller about whether there'll be enough teacups at the garden fate. It can be a suspenseful thing, and it can be an important storyline in a different sort of thing. You'd imagine it might be an archer's storyline, you know? Um, but, but a thriller is something else. Another thing is, in a thriller, you wouldn't be surprised to find um, graphic violence and perhaps a consistent threat of violence. And possibly, although not in my work, a threat of sexual violence. And again, potentially sexual violence graphically on the page. But that's not something that... Whereas Cozy Crime is more like a Greek play and it tends to be offstage. I wouldn't say Cozy's like Greek. But I would would say this. There's a balance between jeopardy and reassurance. And in the thriller, it's going to be somewhere between 70 and 90% jeopardy. In cosy crime, those two things will be in balance, and they want world order restored. Well, world, the world of the village order restored. Yeah, whatever your location is, everybody should be back in their proper place at the end, including, for example, somebody who has had to behave out of character in order to combat the evil. They should be allowed to return to their lives. In a thriller, they're much more likely to be changed and very often damaged by what's happened. Good, I like that. Um, Greg, an exciting piece of news that I won't preempt, but it's about the Women's Prize for Fiction. Would you like to tell Tim and, and our listeners what's happened today? Today, the new judging panel has been announced. And uh, it's always a big moment. And the the Women's Prize for Fiction has this philosophy of having an entire new judging panel every year of five. Uh, or uh, there's, There'll be a bookseller, always, on the panel of five. There'll be a journalist, possibly sometimes TV or radio journalist. There'll be other authors, there'll be publishers. It's always a very balanced panel. And uh, yes, you can find the announcement on social media and they are a really excellent group. Excellent. Good, we look forward to it. Of course, it won't be today by the time you're hearing this, but um, it is when we're recording it. Also, I was going to say, also, there's the, the other news on book prizes, also the, since we were last talking, the demise of the uh, Costa Prize. Yes! Uh, which, is, which is sad. Oh, one, less, one less book prize around. But, um, and prizes are so important because they bring books to the attention of readers that otherwise might just disappear. But also, that reminds me, my book... Before you go, Greg, my backlisted choice is Mantle Pieces by Hilary Mantel. For obvious reasons, I'm still, you know, devastated, really, that she died. But um, the preface, although this book was published in 2020, it's from her pieces in the London Review of Books over many years, and I absolutely adored her. Um, But she actually begins by talking about... Um, how many good to review there were how many good places that you could actually review in but there were things I'd completely forgotten like the listener I'd actually forgotten the listener that so many papers actually had their book pages and so on and so forth Um, and it I just think it's a tragedy that there are so few of them now. The reviewing scene was very different in those days. There were more daily papers and they made space for books. 
For a time in the autumn of 1989, in the spring of 1990, not that long ago, there were five Sunday broadsheets, all of the meeting up copy. There were periodicals that no longer exist, like New Society and The Listener. There was even one called Books and Bookmen. The title tells you everything about the world in which I started to publish. When my wife, Kate Moss, was the one of the founders of the Women's Prize for Fiction, she was motivated by that above all. There had been a year when there were five Booker Prize-nominated novels, all by men, and it was taken as read that it should be so. It wasn't worthy of comment. In a year in which some brilliant literary fiction by women authors had also been published. And that was her motivation, I guess. We're now 30 years on from there. That's still her motivation yes. for writing mm -hmm. Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, a brilliant non-fiction book that puts almost a thousand women back in their place in history. Yeah. Can I just put a thing to you that um, she said at a festival that we were, we were at together speaking the other day, that um, there's this pernicious idea that history was made by men and now and then there was an exceptional woman perhaps Joan of Arc or Elizabeth I but it really was made by men and of course it's not true there were always prominent and extraordinary women making history inventing for example the windscreen wiper or the dishwasher or being the first recorded novelist of human history and yet they've been erased well, the revision goes on because now they're claiming Joan of Arc as the first transgender uh, hero, if we want to call it. So, you know, every every society makes their own heroes in a way and it was been men for ages. Do you know why she was motivated, Kate, to start studying this book? She, uh, Her great-grandmother, Lily Watson, was a very celebrated novelist that she, Kate Moss, had never heard of. Isn't that ridiculous? Her great-grandmother. Crazy. Uh, when the Vicar of Langthwaite published, the Prime Minister, William Gladstone, wrote to the Times to say it is to be praised and that a, a new novel from uh, the great Lily Watson has hit the bookshelves. And yet, so a woman with all kinds of advantages from a, a wealthy Baptist middle-class background, an authority in literature in her age, if she can disappear... How many less uh, well-advantaged people or women must have disappeared? Yeah. So there still is a case for the Women's Prize for Fiction, I think. Yes, there is. But even, even if there were a, a, an equitable playing field, there still would be. Because why not? Yes, why not? Why not have a prize for people who set novels in the Second World War? Or a oh, prize um, the for... More, as you said, the more, the more prizes, the better. Really, why because not? It, 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 puts, it puts books front and centre in the, in the media, which is which is where they need to be. Absolutely so, right. Uh, and we're yeah, doing our we're, small bit here, we're doing, aren't we? We're doing our bit. If we had inexhaustible funds, it, we could do, the, you know, a, a book prize for within 30 miles of Petersfield. A book set within 30 miles of Petersfield. Why not? Why not? I'm working Do we have it. those funds? Do we? <laughs> no? OK. So, Tim, what have we got to look forward to? What's coming up? Well, I've got a, a few books that I wanted to mention. Obviously, it's coming into the into the big period when when lots of lots of big books are coming out. The first one is is The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, he did all the Pretty Horses trilogy. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. And The Road. I um, love The Road. And how can, it, sorry, but how can you love The Road? Well, in <laughs> it's book, the most depressing. It book. is. Well, it I, is think it, I don't think it is. I think it ends on Tell a really, it ends on an, on an upbeat. 
Um, it's a tiny uptick. It's a tiny uptick. At the end of a but stream of misery. It is, but ultimately it is, it is about... It is about coping with with uh, it and it's a, it's a, and it's about it's love about as love. well at, at the end, isn't it? That, Completely uh, about anyway, love. moving on from from the road. Uh, this one starts with a sunken jet, uh, which has got nine bodies in it, and they're all still got their seatbelts on, but the tenth is missing. The tenth body is missing, as is the black box, um, and the tenth passenger, of which this is this is the first. There's two books that he's done uh, over this autumn, and this is the first, the passenger. Um, the next book is is there's a new John Irving. Um, it's called The Last Chairlift, and there hasn't been a John Irving for seven years. Um, Has he been writing it for seven years? I don't know if he's been writing it all that time, but anyway, he, he's the, of course, the prayer for own meanie and well according to Garp. Um, and this one, again, has a protagonist that is semi-autobiographical. It's, it's somebody who's exactly the same age as him anyway. Uh, Adam, the son of a champion slalom skier. But I don't know any more about it. I'm looking forward to, to reading that. Um, there's the book that um, that Greg mentioned, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries by Kate Moss, um, about the other side to history that we hear, we hear, we we know very little about. Um, and as you said, the thousand women whose names uh, we need to know better. Um, and in stark contrast to that, we have Sharp's Command by Bernard Cornwell, <laughs> uh, set in set actually this one set just before the last one, so it's set in 1812. Much um, more testosterone and a lot more testosterone in that. Um, a Private Spy, The Letters of John le Carre, uh, is just just out. It will be just out by the time this, this goes out, which is The Letters from the Last 50 Years of His, his Life, not to be confused with The Secret Heart, which is um, the book by his mistress, um, Silica Dawson. And whether that is, is, is um, fiction or not, I don't, we, don't, we don't know. We, we, don't. we never will know, probably. But it's in the um, Sunday Times, it must be true. It must be true. That's... Wonderful. I look forward to it. And we will be talking much more about Kate's book once we've both read it. So backlisted, um, because we've already referenced Hilary Mantel and so on, and I'm just so distressed that she could possibly be dead. So it caused me to pick up her book Mantelpieces, which I got in 2022. So although that's still technically backlisted, it's even more pertinent because they're pieces that she wrote for the London Review of Books over many years, um, definitely starting, I think, in 85. Um, I may not have picked up that early. I love the London Review of Books because they have such disparate people who write about very disparate books uh, and other subjects. I'm going to read for you, because of Greg and so on, one called Fatal Non-Readers. Now, Sue Townsend um, described Diana, Princess of Wales, as a fatal non-reader. And if you want to find out more about that, you can read the whole piece. But I'm going to look at dresses in particular. So this is Fatal Non-Readers on Marie Antoinette, written in 1999 by Hilary Mantel. In June 1999, the BBC showed a documentary called Diana's Dresses. It was about the auction which took place at Christie's in New York two months before the princess's descent into the Paris underpass. The purchasers spoke reverentially of Diana when she was alive, but her death turned glad rags into relics. I wanted to have a part of royalty, one explained. I am in awe of the dress, said another. When the clothes are turned inside out for the camera, you can see the bones and secret skin of them. 
second dresses built inside so that a princess's mortal underpinnings wouldn't show. Only superficially do they bear a resemblance to clothes worn by ordinary women. They seem constructed rather than sewn, durable as stone with their elaborate frosting and beading and capable of standing up on their own. But their owners worry about their survival. One appears on display only under armed guard. When a Boston shop owner bought three of them and put them in her window, passers-by made a pavement shrine to them with mourning bouquets and tearful messages. One owner described his prize as historically one of the most important dresses Diana ever wore. It is clear that the garments can hardly be picked apart from the flesh. And there is one dress that leads a double life. Two people claim to have the original. By location is an attribute of saints and of their party frocks too. With this in mind, I searched in the Carnivalet Museum this summer for a scrap of cloth from one of Marie Antoinette's dresses, which Chantal Thomas mentions in her lively and imaginative examination of the public persona of the French Queen. This fragment of cloth was carried to the scaffold, she says, by Barnave, who was first seen as an extreme revolutionary, but later became an advisor to the court. I looked hard, but could not find it among the royal souvenirs, Curls of hair, the Dauphin's lead soldiers, chess pieces, the King's geometry set, shaving bowl and razor, and fragments of his waistcoat whimsically made into butterflies. Perhaps like one of Diana's dresses, it has gone on tour. Even more than Diana, Marie Antoinette was her frocks. They defined her and betrayed her. Madame Roland reported that when Marie Antoinette tried to eavesdrop on a conversation between Pétion and the King, Pétion detected her presence by the rustle of silk. Then it goes on to talk about she was married at 14 years old and looked about 12 and she was, she, Marie Antoinette, was actually handed over naked, um, stripped of all her Austrian clothing and handed over like a mannequin to be dressed as a French woman. I mean, it's hideous, isn't it? I hope that's given you a flavour um, that if you struggle, and, and many people do, myself included, when I started Wolf Hall, I absolutely loved book two, Bringing Up the Bodies. Um, but, but Wolf Hall I did struggle with. So if you do struggle with Mantel, try the earlier novels. But if you really are a non-fiction fan and have any interest in any range of subjects, um, do try mantelpieces because each section is short because, as I say, they, it was just first published in the London Review of Books. And, um, oh, she is so pithy and erudite and knowing. I absolutely love her. I, I hesitate to talk again about my wife's book, but it is interesting, isn't it, what a terrible press Marie Antoinette has. Utterly. And... You suspect, knowing what we know about so many other prominent women from history, you probably think about Marie de Medici, for example, did they deserve that terrible press, that awful odour that has clung to them for so many years? Often sexual. There's somewhere that said, I can't remember between when and when, but it was something like in, in a year, there are 126 pamphlets written about her of such awful... Um, libertine description that I couldn't read this bit it would be actually I wouldn't be able to broadcast it Tim um, that's it really 
Yes, just to say that we, next month we hope to have Nigel Richardson, who's written a book called The Accidental Detectorist, about his time become, being a detectorist, which, oh, he, which he started doing during, during lockdown. Oh, but that's a brilliant programme. It, it it, 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 that should be great. So looking forward to that. Fantastic. And where can they find Talking Books? Talking Books, available where you get your podcasts. Excellent. Great. Thank you, Greg, <laughs> for coming. It's really been a pleasure. enjoyed it. Lovely. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, too. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. When you listen to Petersfield's Shine Radio, the children of Sheet Primary School will keep you on time. It's 16 minutes to 7. It's quarter past 5. Through the day, every day, their young voices keep Petersfield running like clockwork. It's 27 minutes to 12. It's half past 6. Shine Time is sponsored by Pickets and Purses for the timeless beauty of new and vintage jewellery in Petersfield. It's 29 minutes to 3. Shine Time, only from Petersfield's Shine Radio. Mm-hmm.